It's exciting. Would you stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word? Pastor Bruce will be continuing his series on the cries from the cross. This morning, looking in the book of John, the 19th chapter, verses 23 through 27 in your pew Bible. You'll find it on page 625. This morning's message entitled, A Cry of Compassion. Again, we're in the book of John, chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Let's pray. God, we can't thank you enough for the compassion that you showed us on the cross. Lord, just remind us this morning how much you love us, that it would change our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's just pretty exciting. I'm just, uh, man, I'm just jazzed up to see people baptized, to see people come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and then want to uh, express that commitment publicly through baptism. It's just an awesome thing. And that's what, uh, you know, that's what our church is about, it's what making disciples is all about, being a, a follower of Christ. And it's really the first step in that process of knowing Christ, growing in Christ, showing Christ, and then going for Christ. Uh, and, and so just, man, that's just the coolest thing in the world. And uh, I'm excited that we get to continue in this series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks, a series, as you see in these posters, called Christ from the Cross. And, uh, and in this series, what we're basically doing is taking some time to look at the seven last sayings or the seven last words that Jesus spoke from the cross as he was being crucified. Uh, if you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that in the very first message, we looked at Jesus' cry for forgiveness when he prayed for his enemies, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. A shocking prayer. And yet, it's a prayer that is still being answered today every time someone comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then last Sunday, Pastor Chris uh, preached and we looked at Jesus' cry of assurance when, when Jesus assured the, one of the thieves uh, being crucified next to him, the repentant thief on the cross, when Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. What a promise that we have from our Lord, that we can claim for ourselves even today. And then this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' third cry from the cross. And that third cry from the cross is this. It's a simple cry, and yet it's a profound cry. It's a cry of compassion for his family. The third cry from the cross that Jesus speaks to us this morning is a cry of compassion for his family. Now, just like the first two cries while hanging on the cross, Jesus thought of others instead of himself, which, when you think about it, is really amazing. These first three cries stand apart, stand out. They're a little bit different from the last four cries that we'll begin looking at next Sunday. But these first three uh, sayings or cries are really focused on others. And in this specific case, the third cry... Jesus is again thinking of others instead of himself when he spoke to his mother Mary and then to his best friend John, the disciple. But before we get to the cry, before we get to the saying, I want you to notice as Jesus began speaking what the soldiers were doing. They were casting lots for his tunic or his undergarment. And we're told in John 19, verses 23 and 24, what Kirk read for us, but notice what it says again. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, 
dividing them into four shares or the four pieces, four parts, one for each of them with the undergarment or the tunic remaining. This garment was seamless. It was woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Now, let me give you kind of a little bit of a, uh, a background to what's taking place right here. And, uh, and I, I, I had to learn this myself, had to study this this last week or the week before. Jewish men usually wore five pieces of clothing. And so the soldiers, as the scripture tells us here, had already divided up four pieces of Jesus' clothing, but they had to decide who would get the fifth piece, the seamless garment or the, the undergarment, the tunic. And so what they did, they casted lots to see who would get it. It was seamless. They didn't want to tear it. That would devalue it. It would make it worthless, useless. And so they cast lots to see what they would, uh, who would get it. Now, this tunic or undergarment was usually given to a son by his mother. What's interesting here is according to tradition, Mary, the mother of Jesus, gave this tunic to Jesus when he left home to begin his earthly ministry. Uh, Some of you may know his ministry uh, was over a span of three years. So when he was a man uh, and he left home, his mother gave him this. And so if this is true, if this is the case, and we don't know this for sure, but if this is true, there seems to be something going on here in this third saying. There seems to be a connection between what the soldiers are doing, that is casting lots to see who gets this undergarment, this tunic, and what Jesus was now saying in this third cry. Think about it. As one author points out, and I quote, he says, Jesus' outer garments were insignificant. But when they touched the tunic, they touched something very near to his heart. The garment made for him by his mother. So when the soldiers began haggling over the tunic, casting lots to see who would get it, it was then that as Jesus was hanging on the cross that he looked at his mother and comforted her with words filled with compassion. Notice again what Jesus says in verses 26 and 27. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, if you can imagine with me here, it's almost as if Jesus were writing his last will and testament and executing it right there on the cross. Mary, basically what Jesus is telling her, would have to adopt John, the disciple, as if he were her very own son. And as best he could, John would fill the aching void Jesus' death would bring. Mary was losing a son, but gaining another one, if you will. And John now is charged with taking care of Mary as if she were his very own mother. Now these words, uh, they're rather simple. They're, They're not hard to understand the words, what Jesus is saying here, but they have profound implications for us today when you look closely to what Jesus is saying. Even though Jesus said these words over 2,000 years ago, what I want you to come away with, what I want us to understand, is that they still have practical relevance for us today. That's that's what amazes me uh, probably most about God's word. And if you have a Bible here in your hands this morning, whether your own personal Bible or a pew Bible, one of the black books in the pew there, listen, God's Word is practical. It's relevant. It it makes a difference in our lives today. And what Jesus is saying to his mother, and what he's saying to John the disciple, even though these are simple words, they are profound because they still make a difference for us now. So the question becomes, well, what are they... What do they mean? What do we see in this scene from the cross? What do we learn from these three words that we can take hold of today in our lives? 
that we can walk out of here and begin to apply where it makes a difference for us? Well, there's three things I think we can see from this scene. Three things I want us to see together here this morning. Number one, we see a mother's sorrow for her son. I think that's pretty clear when you look at this scene. We see a mother's sorrow for her son. Now, for a moment, let's just put ourselves in the shoes of Mary, the mother of Jesus. What a courageous woman this beloved mother was as she stood at the foot of the cross. Now, can you imagine the anguish, the sorrow, the pain Mary must have felt seeing her son being crucified on the cross? It's difficult enough for any parent to lose a child, but to watch your son brutalized, tortured, and hung on a cross is hard to imagine. Mary's pain can be understood by any parent who has had to stand by and watch their child suffer in pain. And in fact, it, this reminds me, as soon as I was studying this, my mind went back uh, three years ago, maybe it's four years ago now, when my youngest son, Jack, you know, he was in kindergarten at the time, we were sledding uh, at my sister-in-law's house, and I'm coming down the hill on a tube, and he's at the bottom of the hill, and he decides he's going to try to jump on me as I'm going past him. And my legs are stretched out, and as he did, he got in the way, and my legs just undercut him right here and just snapped his leg right here. Snapped it in half. He broke both bones in that leg. In fact, he did a complete somersault in the air and then landed. My wife is at the top of the hill. She sees the whole thing happen. And, uh, and I could feel when I hit him, this is not good. I get down to the bottom of the hill, look up, and he screamed. And the first thing that comes out of his word is, I broke my leg. My leg is broke. He already knew it. And, of course, I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if you broke your leg. Darla runs down the hill as fast as she can. I come up to him, and he's just in pain. And he's screaming. And so, I, you know, I kind of, we try, try to look at it. Of course, he had on, you know, snow bibs. You can't hardly see his leg at all. And, and so I said, well, let, you know, I had to pick him up and carry him into Donna's house. And we began to take off his bibs. And you could see, yeah, it's broke. His leg's just hanging like that, his foot. And he's just in pain. And, and what was so hard is Darla, his mom, there's not a thing she could do at that moment. And she's crying by this time. And she is just suffering as much as Jack is almost because she can't do anything. And she's having to watch Jack in pain. And, of course, we rushed him to the emergency room. And then we had to take him to Children's Mercy, Mercy Hospital. And by that time, the pain had settled down. They stabilized his leg. But then the next hardest thing came when they had to set the leg before they put the cast on. You'd think they'd put you under for that. They don't. So he's laying down on the table, and the doctor motions for me to come over and literally, physically hold him down while the doctor then, and Darla's standing by, and again, she's just crying in pain and anguish. And so if you're a parent here, and you've had to watch your child suffer Maybe not physically, maybe you've had to watch your child suffer emotionally or, uh, you, you know, you name it, whatever. You understand just a little bit then what Mary must have gone through as she stood at the cross and watched her son. He was beaten and marred. His body was traumatized by the scourging. His forehead she used to kiss when he was a boy, was now lacerated with a crown of thorns. His hands, she once held, were now pierced and bloodied by spikes. Uh, one author has written about Mary's sorrow at the cross, and this is what he says and how he describes it. He, he writes, she sees him suspended but cannot touch him. She sees him nailed but na- may not loose him. She sees him dripping with blood but cannot stop it. She sees him wounded but cannot bind up his wounds. She hears him cry, I thirst, but may not give him to drink. If Jesus was the man of sorrows, then Mary was certainly the woman of sorrows. In fact, what's interesting here, and this is in your notes coming up on the screen, Mary's sorrow was actually predicted by Simeon. When Mary and Joseph took baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him. As Mary witnessed 
Jesus' crucifixion. I believe this prediction from over 30 years ago rang through her ears. Mary first heard this prediction when she and Joseph took Jesus into the temple to dedicate him and to have him circumcised. And there they met an old prophet named Simeon who blessed Mary and Joseph and then pointing to Jesus said in Luke chapter 2 verse 34, this child pointing to Jesus is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then comes the prediction. Then he said this to Mary in verse 35, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. A sword will pierce your own soul too. Now, You know, that kind of blows me away. Maybe it does you. Because what kind of thing is that to say to a mother who's having her baby dedicated? Right? We've had child dedications up here. Can you imagine me saying, looking to the mom holding her baby, oh, by the way, a sword is going to pierce your soul too because of this child. I mean, what do you make of that if you're the mom, if you're married? A sword will pierce your own soul too. Of course, at that time, Mary could not have anticipated what all this was talking about, what Simeon meant by it. And yet Simeon was oh so right in his prediction. If Mary was to have a son, she would also have to have a sword. But Mary pondered those words, and as the years passed by, Simeon's prediction began to make more and more sense to Mary. Maybe the first time the sword began to pierce her heart was when the innocent babies were massacred in Bethlehem because of Herod's fear of the Messiah. Maybe perhaps the sword struck again when Mary heard the whispers of the people she lived with that implied that her son was conceived in shame. She overheard the ridicule and the insults She knew that people tried to push her son over a cliff, even in Nazareth, because they didn't believe in him. They rejected him. And every time that happened, the sword would pierce a little more. And now, as Mary looked up and saw Jesus hanging on the cross, I believe the sword pierced all the way through her soul. Perhaps she realized for the first time that Jesus was not her child, but she was his. Maybe for the first time, Mary began to to grasp the fact that this was not simply her firstborn son, but he was God Almighty. Perhaps Mary understood the earthly ties were over, and a new heavenly relationship was about to begin. Jesus would no longer be her son, but would now be her Savior. What probably amazes me most of this one scene with Mary here is the Bible makes this little statement that she's simply standing nearby at the foot of the cross. And the Bible tells us that Mary stands by the cross and she suffers in unbroken silence. She does not crouch. She does not faint. She doesn't even sink to the ground in grief. She stands and she sees it all. What anguish, what sorrow Mary must have endured at the cross where her eldest son was being crucified. That's the first thing we see in this picture, in this scene. We see a mother's sorrow for her son. The second thing we see is we see a son's care for his mother. We see a son's care for his mother. Right up until this moment, Mary may have held out the hope that her son would not have to die. She knew that Jesus had the power to perform miracles. I'm sure she saw some of those miracles. In fact, we know she saw the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. She was there at that wedding feast. She knew that Jesus could could call upon the legions of angels to deliver him. And when Jesus said, woman, behold your son, she also knew that Jesus was taking his leave of her in order to die. These words to Mary from the cross may have been like a sword that pierced her soul, but there was also tenderness in them. 
This term, woman, we tend to see that term as rather hard, harsh, um, generic in nature. But this word woman in some of your Bible translations can also be translated as dear woman. And so Jesus was speaking to Mary, listen, with real affection, with tenderness here. He was speaking to her in love. And it was because of Jesus' great love for his mother Mary that he said what he said. One commentator writes this. He says says this, There is something infinitely moving in the fact that Jesus, in the agony of the cross, in the moment when the salvation of the world hung in the balance, thought of the loneliness of his mother in the days when he was taken away. So what, in what way did Jesus care for his mother here? What's going on when he says, woman, behold your son and behold your mother? I mean, in what way did Jesus care for his mother when he said this? Well, I think there's two ways that we see Jesus care, his compassion for his mother Mary in this scene here. Number one, look at it, notice it. Jesus cared for his mother by fulfilling his duty as a son. By fulfilling his duty as a son. Even though Jesus is dying a brutal death on the cross, he's still fulfilling, and this is amazing, he's still fulfilling the most basic responsibility that any son had. Jesus is making sure that his mother is cared for. You say, well, why is this so important? Well, because Mary is a widow at this time. Most scholars believe that Joseph, uh, Mary's husband, had long since died. And as the eldest son, Jesus was responsible to provide for her care. And so what he does, he entrusts her to his best friend, John, the disciple. You may be wondering, well, why didn't Jesus uh, commit his mother to his half-brothers? After all, he wasn't the only son born of Mary. He had many other brothers, half-brothers. Well, for one reason why he didn't, they were not even in Jerusalem during the crucifixion. They were in Galilee. So they were away. They were gone. But probably the most important reason is, is they had rejected him. His own brothers did. Because they didn't believe he was the Messiah until after the resurrection. And so there was no one there of his family to commit her to just his best friend, John. So here is Jesus. If you can imagine it, he's dying on the cross. And yet he cares for his mother by providing for her needs. When Jesus cried out, woman, behold your son. And son, behold your mother. It was as if Jesus, as we already said, was writing his last will and testament. Jesus has nothing to give to his mother. He's got no inheritance. He has no money to give her. He has no home to leave her. He doesn't even have any clothes to give her. So what does he do? Jesus entrusts her to one of his most trusted friends. Jesus basically says, Mother, listen, I can no longer take care of you. But John, look at him. He is now your son. He will take care of you from now on. So when you step away from this, what does this mean for us today? What do we learn from this, though? What do we learn from the example of Jesus as a son caring for his own mother. Well, notice this. We learn that true love pays attention to and provides for the needs of family members, especially parents, as they grow old. That's what Jesus was doing here. He paid attention to his grieving mother who was standing there at the foot of the cross, and then he provided for her needs. Basically, what Jesus was doing, he was fulfilling the fifth commandment. You remember the fifth commandment? We did a series on the Ten Commandments last summer. The fifth commandment states in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. This was what Jesus was doing. There is no statue of limitations on that command. In other words, you don't honor your parents just as long as you're home. You don't honor them as long as they're alive. You honor them as long as you're alive. And Jesus teaches us by his own example here on the cross to honor our parents by paying attention to them and providing for their needs as they grow old. You say, man, you don't know my parents. I know I don't. I know some of your parents, but most of you I don't. 
say, you don't know my mom. You don't even know my dad. I don't even know my dad. You don't know the home life I grew up in. And you're right, I don't. Not all of you. I can't even begin to imagine some of the home lives that some of you grew up in. But you know what? And I say this with love and tenderness, and yet with truthfulness. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter whether they were good parents, whether they were bad parents, whether they were indifferent parents, whether they were abusive parents, or whether they were absent parents. You can still, listen to me, you can still honor their position as parents. You can still honor them for being used by God to bring you into this world, to give you life. Here's the point. No matter what you do in this life, you can be the biggest success in your job, in your career. No matter what you do in this life, you can hardly be considered a success if you neglect to care for your parents. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 3 and 4. It says, honor widows who are truly widows. But, but, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Listen to me. Do you want to please God? Listen, true love starts at home by caring for elderly family members. 1 Timothy 5.8 says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's how important love is here. It starts at home with your family. And some of you, I know some of your stories, some of you here this morning, you are in this position of caring for your aging parents. And it's not easy. In fact, there are times it's a burden. It's an added burden to your life already of caring for them, caring for their needs physically, emotionally, whatever the case may be. But I want you to understand you are doing the right thing. You are fulfilling the commandment that God gave us in Exodus. Listen, you are acting like Jesus himself when he hung on the cross and paid attention and provided for his own mother's needs. What a glorious thought to know that. Listen, I am acting like Jesus when I give my time, when I give my energy, and when I don't, I'm, I'm burnt at the end of the day and I make another trip over to my aging parents to see their welfare and to see their needs being provided for. Jesus not only cared for his mother by fulfilling his duty as a son, but number two, Jesus cared for his mother by establishing his identity as the Savior. By establishing his identity as the Savior. Now, let me explain what I mean by this because this is really important. I believe this is the reason, or at least one reason, why Jesus addressed Mary, quote, woman, instead of mother. Did you notice that in the text? I don't think that's by accident. I think what Jesus was doing here is he was breaking his ties with Mary as her son and establishing a new relationship with her as her savior. There are some churches, and many people even believe, and there are some churches that teach that Mary is the mediator of the grace of Christ. They call her the mother of God and the queen of heaven. But folks, listen to me. You won't find that in the scriptures. You won't find that in the Bible. What you find, like each of us here this morning, is that Mary is a member of a fallen race. She is a sinner, like all of us here this morning, both by nature and by practice. As one author writes... It is true. She is blessed among women. And that by virtue of the high honor of being the mother of the Redeemer, yet was she human, a real member of our fallen race, a sinner needing a Savior. 
Listen, Mary first met Jesus at the manger. We know the Christmas story. And she was the first person to meet him. She felt him stirring in her womb. She gave birth to him in a stable. She held him in her arms and she nursed him at her breast. Mary met Jesus as her son. Where? At the manger. But she did not meet him as her savior until she met him at the cross. Mary needed to lose Jesus as a son, in order to find him as a savior. Mary needed to take her place with the other sinners at the foot of the cross. She needed Jesus to die for her own sins as well. Now, this has tremendous implications for us this morning. Powerful implications for us. What does this mean for you and I today? What do we learn from Jesus' example as the savior to Mary? Well, we learn this. Notice it coming up on the screen. That if Mary needed to meet Jesus at the cross as her Savior, then we need to meet him there too. Think about it this way with me. If Mary needed to stand as a sinner at the cross, then you need to stand as a sinner at the cross. If Mary needed Jesus to die for her sins, then I need Jesus to die for my sins. If Mary needed to trust Jesus for her salvation, then we all here this morning are in the same boat. We need to trust in Jesus for our salvation. And here's the best part about it. And once you meet Jesus as your Savior at the cross, something wonderful happens. You become a member of God's family, which brings us to the third thing we see in this scene at the cross. Number three, we see a disciple's love for his new family. We see a disciple's love for his new family. Before the crucifixion, some of you may be familiar that Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then he was taken into custody. Do you remember what all the other disciples that were with Jesus did at that time? What did they do? Yeah, they ran. They all deserted him. They all fled. And that would include John, the beloved disciple, which means even Jesus' closest friend did what? He ran and hid because they were ashamed of him. But notice, where is John now in this passage? Where is he at? John came back. For here is John. He is standing at the foot of the cross next to Mary identifying himself with the crucified Christ. Exactly when John came back, we do not know. Why he came back, we are not told. But suddenly, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we find that John is back at the foot of the cross, standing next to Mary. And what does Jesus do? I love this. He doesn't rebuke John. He doesn't rebuke him for leaving. But rather, he looks at John, and and in grace and in forgiveness, he gives him a new responsibility when he says, Behold your mother. Jesus is basically telling John, Listen, take care of my mother. Love her. Take her into your own home and care for her. And notice what it says next at the end of verse 27. What did John do? And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. That's an amazing statement there. What a testimony to John. You may be wondering, well, what happened to Mary? Well, we don't know what happened to Mary. The scriptures are silent as to what happened to her. You may be wondering, well, how long did she live with John? Again, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Well, when did she die? And again, we don't know. But what we do know is that John loved Mary as if she were his own mother, and he took care of Mary in his own home. So again, what does this mean for us today? What is the practical ramifications for us? Well, we learn that when you come to the cross to meet Jesus as your Savior, you begin a new relationship as a member of God's eternal family. And then you are given a new responsibility to love other believers as family. Now, 
one of the greatest blessings when you come to the cross and accept Jesus as your Savior is you become a member of God's family. Folks, that is something to shout hallelujah about. Amen? These people that were baptized, they've come to Christ. You want to know whose family they're a part of? They are a member of God's family, God's eternal family. Listen, if you meet Jesus at the cross the way Mary did, admitting that you are a sinner and trusting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then you will be welcomed into God's family. When you accept the salvation that Jesus offers, God adopts you into his family as his own sons and daughters. And here's the really cool part. Our spiritual bonds are stronger than our natural bonds. Just think about this for a moment. How many have heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, how many have used it? Sure, I have. Blood's thicker than water. I try to teach my boys, listen, we stick together, we're family. You guys shouldn't be fighting. You got to get along and love one another. Why? Because we're family. We stick together through thick and thin. Blood is thicker than water. That's true, but listen to me, there's something even thicker than blood, and that's the family of God. Do you realize that spiritual families will far outlast your physical family? Whoa, just let that blow you away for a moment. God's grace is greater than genetics. Listen to me. No physical family is going to last forever. No family unit stays as a family unit forever. Even here on this earth, they don't stay together forever. Why? We have divorce and we have death. Your relationship to your physical family is not going to last forever. But your relationship to believers in God's family is going to last forever. So if you come, listen to me, I know some of you come, and if you do, if you come from a broken family, A family that's dysfunctional, a family that's been torn apart, a family where maybe you don't know who your dad is or even who your mom is or whatever the case may be. And if that's your background, then Jesus invites you to participate in the family you have longed for. He invites you to receive more love, support, and joy than you can ever dream possible. And if you come from a strong and loving family, you will find that the ties in your new spiritual family are even stronger and better than those old family ties. Listen, the new family ties are stronger because they are bound by the love of God Himself. And they are better because they cannot be broken even by death itself. What a wonderful thing here. To be a part of the family of God. To know that God is my Heavenly Father and that I have brothers and sisters here on this earth that will last for all eternity. But with this new relationship in God's family comes a new responsibility to love one another as family. Look what Jesus says. Before he was crucified, Jesus made these statements. And John, this beloved disciple, records it for us. After the crucifixion, and after Jesus rises again and is ascended into heaven, look what Jesus says in John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new command I give you. And what is that command? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And then later on, after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, John writes these words in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. He said, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Listen, the principle here is so simple. As a member of God's family, we have a responsibility to each other. And that responsibility is to love one another, to care for one another, to support and encourage one another. In fact, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. And then he makes this statement, especially to those who belong to the family 
of believers. Now, can I just add here? This is why we as a church believe it's so important to be part of a small group. Because let's just be honest here this morning. It is difficult to love one another in a crowd like this on a Sunday morning worship service. I mean really love one another. We can go to somebody. I can go to Bill and say, Bill, man, I love you, brother. I can give him a hug, and I can express my love to him. But that's about as far as it goes in a worship service. Because we're in a crowd, right? It's at this level. And it's even more difficult that if you're hurting and you're going through something in life that's difficult, it's even more difficult in a crowd to receive love and to receive encouragement and support. That's not to diminish the importance of being in a worship service. We need to. We need to be under the preaching of God's word. We need to hear what he has to say to us. We need to worship as a congregation, as a family of God together. But the, one of the greatest places to practice loving one another is when you're with a smaller group of people because you can't do it in a crowd. It's hard. It's hard for me to share and get to know somebody personally. I shake hands back there, me and my wife do every Sunday. You know what? It, I have about 20 seconds to say hi and, and how's your week been? And that's as far as it goes. But when... I'm a part of my group on Sunday nights, my small group, and like tonight we'll meet at Jerry's house and Vicky's house, and the people in my small group, and we'll have some food and some snacks, and we begin to talk and share a little bit. And then we get into our discussion, let me tell you, that's where when God begins to work, and somebody opens up and begins to share, man, this is what I'm going through in life. And it's been tough. How do I deal with this or whatever? And like our group did about three weeks ago with one member in our group, man, we gathered around and we prayed and we supported and we encouraged and we lifted this person up in prayer and hugged and we practiced love one another in our group setting. And that just doesn't take place in a worship service. This is why our church has small groups. This is why we believe everybody ought to be a part of one. And I understand everybody won't, but it's still our goal. And we would love to hook you up, connect you. I shouldn't say hook you up. That's a bad term these days, ain't it? <laughs> We'd love to get you connected in a small group, and that's something you're interested in, man. Just fill out the communication card, and we'll try to get you connected to a small group that... You can try out. If you don't like it, man, there's another one to go try out, be a part of. Talk to me, talk to Pastor Chris, whatever the case may be. Here's the question. Here's the question we need to consider. And I think this is the question where it really all boils down to. And that is, would you have taken care of Mary if Jesus had asked? If you were standing at the foot of the cross and Jesus looked to you and said, listen, Bill, behold your mother. John, behold your mother. Jim, behold your mother. Or even a female, behold your mother. Would you have taken care of Mary if Jesus had asked? You say, of course I would. I know, we all say we would, right? I don't think anybody here would stand and say, nope, I'm not taking care of the mother of Jesus. But how can you know for sure if you would answer that way? How can you know for sure if you really would take care of her? Here's how we can know for sure, folks. Right here, we are given the same opportunity every day with God's family. And that's how we know if we would answer this question. Jesus, he makes an astounding statement when he was interrupted by a man who wanted to tell him that his mother and brothers were looking for him. This is before his crucifixion. It's during his earthly ministry, and he's teaching now. He's with his disciples, and he's teaching. And somebody interrupts him, this man does, and says, Listen, your mother and brothers, they're outside, and they want to speak to you. Now, if that happens to me, you know what I normally do? I'm like, well, okay, bring them in. 
instead of rolling out the red carpet, Jesus asked in Matthew 12, 47, he's asked this question to this man, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then Jesus looked at his disciples and said, here are my brothers and mother. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, just so we don't misunderstand, Jesus is not putting down his mother and his brothers. What he is doing is he is redefining his family in spiritual terms here. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples at that present time, and now to us here in the 21st century, he is saying we are Jesus' brothers sisters, and mothers. And like John, we are asked to take Christ's place in the world by loving one another as a family of God. So let me ask, would you have taken care of Mary if Jesus had asked? Folks, you can answer that question by simply looking in evaluating your life and saying, all right, how do I love one another in the family of God today? And if I can say, this is why it's also so important to belong to a local church family as well. You see, when you commit your life to Christ, you are automatically adopted into God's spiritual family. It's the universal family of God, the universal church of God. But God has given us local churches to be a part of all over the world. It's a cool thing. I mean, it's, it's just amazing what God has done. And so now we become members of each local church. And if you're not a member of a local church, then you're kind of just floating around out there. And it's real hard to practice love. It's real hard to receive love and encouragement. And so perhaps you're here this morning and you have yet to even make a commitment to uh, a local church like us here at Glenwood. Let me encourage you to do that. I know some of you have been through our new members class. Uh, We're getting ready to have another one this spring starting in April, the Sunday after Easter. And, uh, you know, if you've been attending for a while, I would encourage you to sign up for it. Uh, I teach it at 930 uh, on Sunday mornings and it just goes through and explains what church membership is about, the benefits of it. the expectations of a member, and it's something that you can go through and then decide at the end of it, hey, is God leading me to commit my life to this or not, to this local church family? We're part of God's family as believers, but you also, we need to make a commitment to one another in a church family too. Let me leave you with three action steps for today as we conclude. Let me do this real quickly here. The first action step is this. Respond to Jesus' love by trusting him as your Savior. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Man, I hope you see Jesus' love for you when he died on the cross for your sins. Romans 5.8 says this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So have you ever trusted Jesus as your Savior? Listen, you can do that today by admitting that you're a sinner, and then by faith, trusting Jesus as your Savior. We're going to have a response time here in a moment, and while the praise team sings, you can just, in prayer, you can just talk to God and speak to Him and tell Him, God, I am a sinner, I know I am, and I need Jesus as my Savior. Please forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. And Lord, I want to live for you. And it can be as simple as that. So the first action step is to respond to Jesus' love by trusting him as your Savior. The second action step is to follow Jesus' example by honoring your parents. And again, if I can say this, no one is ever discharged from the obligation to honor your parents. And if you really want to take this to heart, then at least tell your parents, I love you. And do it while you still have the chance. And if your parents have already died, then honor them by remembering them. 
The Bible never says honor your parents only as long as they're alive. You are supposed to honor them as long as you're alive. You say, how do you do that? One way is by remembering them. And if you are unable to speak good about your parents, because I know some of you have been hurt severely by your parents, by either your dad or your mother, and your memories of that as a child growing up is pain and anguish and whatever. And if you are unable to speak good about your parents, listen, you can still honor them by refusing to speak evil of them. Refusing to talk bad about them is a form of honoring them, even when they may not deserve it. And then the third action step is this. Obey Jesus' commandment by loving one another as a family. Remember, the church is not a building. Do you realize this building we're in is not the church? Who's the church? We are. The church is a group of people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and adopted into God's family. And we are called to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, doing whatever we can to show love to each other. But in order to love one another, we must be connected to one another instead of unplugged from each other. So let me encourage you. If you're not a member of a local church, of a local family of God, I would encourage you to be one, to join up to become a member, a part of a family of God. And, of course, we would love for that to take place here at Glenwood. If you're not a part of a small group in which you can practice love and to receive love, I would encourage you to think about it. You're not committing your life to it forever. Just go for four weeks, see how it is. And if you don't come away more encouraged, then don't go to it anymore. No big deal. I think you will, though. I believe in it that much. All right, let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for the words of Jesus Christ on the cross. We thank you for the, the relevance that it has for our life even today. And Lord, as we come to our time where we respond to you, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and that we would do what is necessary. We would respond to your word however you are speaking to us. Lord, maybe it's an issue of, with our parents of honoring them. Maybe there's grudges that need to be forgiven with our parents, and I pray you would work in those people's hearts, Lord. Maybe we need to make, take that next step of, of committing to church membership or a small group or, or whatever. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do your work as only you as the praise team sings, perhaps there's somebody here that has yet to become a part of God's spiritual family. They have yet to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I pray that right now, by faith and in prayer, they would confess you as Lord of their life. They would repent of their sin and ask you to come into their heart and be their Savior. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As the praise team sings, this is the time to respond right where you're sitting. Will you respond?